This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come, come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. It's Sunday, January 17th, 2021, and I don't believe the numbers. That's my new show intro. Uh, yes, the virus is real. We need to mitigate risk. But the data, I believe, is seriously flawed. Likely it is even fudged. Uh, we have a busy show for you tonight. Broadcaster, blogger, fiercely independent investigator, researcher George Freund will be here in hour two. Uh, we're just a few days away from the Kamala Harris administration being sworn in, uh, and that I, I said that the way I intended to say it, the Kamala Harris administration, uh, placeholder president-elect Joe Biden will take the oath of office as the 46th president, of course, in just a few days. But how long will he be president before he's uh, pushed aside or before he steps aside? We all know that's what's going to happen. That was the plan from the beginning. So. We need to pay more attention to Kamala Harris. Who is she? Where does she come from? Namely, the California Democratic machine under her former lover, Willie Brown Jr., who served as a state assemblyman for 30 years, 15 as speaker. He was also the mayor of San Francisco. And back in the 1970s, Willie Brown and many others, as we'll uh, discuss in the second hour, many others in his party in California were bending over backwards to court political favor with a madman, a mass murderer, namely Jim Jones, the leader of the People's Temple, who in 1978, you know the grisly details, uh, Jones would lead a mass suicide or murder of his followers in their camp of uh, Jonestown in Guyana. And all 909 people, including children, died after being forced to drink cyanide-laced punch. And as I mentioned, Jim Jones was a powerful political force in San Francisco. He was a mentor to Willie Brown, and Willie Brown was a mentor to Kamala Harris. George Freund will be uh, with us in the second hour to discuss. This hour, uh, members of federal, provincial, and municipal police forces in Canada all swear an oath of allegiance, the necessity of 
performing this ritual goes back beyond the beginning of modern policing. The basic text of the oath is remarkably consistent throughout the Western world. Invoking an oath is looked upon as necessary due to the enormous power and trust society bestows upon the position and public concern that abuse of such power and trust will ultimately have accountability. And the oath goes something like this. I I solemnly swear that I will be loyal to Her Majesty the Queen and to Canada and that I will uphold the Constitution of Canada and that I will, to the best of my ability, preserve the peace, prevent offenses and discharge my other duties faithfully, impartially and according to the law. So help me God. Now, most police in Canada take that oath very seriously. Sadly, some do not. And this these days, it seems as though the very people who took an oath to serve and protect are too busy enforcing excessive and ridiculous public health orders. The Charter of Rights be damned. If you're assembling in mass numbers in the name of social justice, the police will look on, maybe even take a knee. If you decide to pay or to play a little pawn shinny, Overzealous police may just tackle you to the ground or taser you. On Saturday, of course, police dispersed crowds at two anti-lockdown protests, one at Dundas Square, another at Nathan Phillips Square. There were uh, three arrests, one after a protester allegedly assaulted a police officer. If that is true, that individual should be punished to the full extent of the law. Eighteen people were charged with failure to comply. Failure to comply with what? A stay-at-home order. What's happening to our country? Well, a growing number of retired and active-duty police in Canada have seen enough. They're as disturbed and distressed as you are by what they're witnessing. And a few of them got together and formed a group called Police on Guard for Thee. One of the founders is Vincent Gersies. He's a retired senior Ontario Provincial Police Constable. He's a a former forensic collision investigator, an ex-ERT member, and he's very concerned about the present displays of police overriding their constitutional oaths at the hands of ambitious politicians and even police management. He doesn't like the dangerous potential of certain tyranny, political, and emerging globalist agendas colliding with Canadian patriots. Again, Vincent Gersies, a founding member of Police on Guard for Thee. Vincent, welcome to the the uh, program. How are How are you? Good evening, Richard, and thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit more about Police on Guard for Thee. When when did was it formed, and and roughly how many members so far? Um, well, I, I actually can't speak in volumes about that group. The views that I'm going to express, and the opinions and the ideas that I expressed on your show this evening, they will be my own and are in no way represent any previous or current group that I belong to. Um, that has been the request of most groups that I have belonged to or do belong to. And so I value that. And, um, but I can speak to the issues that you want to speak to, uh, this evening. I just can't act as a representative from any group or talk about any information from any group specifically. I understand. Uh, uh yep. so putting the group aside though, you're, you're certainly not alone. There are other individuals and they would have to speak. On behalf of themselves, obviously, but in other words, you're not alone. There are a number of police retired active duty that are clearly upset with what's going on. Is that is that fair to say? 
Yes, that's correct. As, as far as the group that you had mentioned, I was the first officer to sign on with that group. Uh, that is retired officer. I need to be clear about that. Um, I, I was the first member to sign on publicly with that group. And um, so there are a number of, yes, there are a number of uh, quite a few police officers that are concerned about this issue. And I and will speak to what that issue is specifically. It has been my concern. It is the concern of several groups. It is the concern of most citizens that I see protesting these uh, these issues. And that is that um, police officers have taken an oath, you know, um, whether you're an active duty member or for those retired members will recall what our oath was. And the oath is consistent with in Ontario with the Police Services Act of Ontario. There are incredible consistencies across the board with the oath, the Police Services Act, and the Canadian Charter of Rights. They're all saying the same thing. So these new, medi- give these new me- medical mandates now that have come out seem right. to be in conflict with all of that. So what is a police officer to do when he has received instructions from police management, from the government to enforce these medical health, these medical uh, orders? Uh, we don't expect police necessarily to be constitutional experts, but they receive their their marching orders. Uh what are they to do when they feel that 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 something they are being asked to enforce isn't consistent with the Charter of Rights? Well, my opinion, and again, I'm expressing my opinion and what I think these officers should be doing and what I would be doing if I was an active member, which I am no longer. But I have submitted 32 years of service to the organization, and uh, I think I can uh, I am not speaking on behalf of the organization. I'm just speaking on behalf of my knowledge um, from situations that I would have dealt with in times when there is conflict between uh, my moral obligations to society and perhaps an order that comes my way. And it's really a, a, a question of having your moral compass dialed in properly. And if it's calibrated and you feel you're getting conflicting orders, in my opinion, the fundamental law of our country is the Canadian Charter of Rights. And these are the basic principles and guiding principles of all our all of our laws. They are they're based on that foundation. And if the charter had come into effect in nineteen eighty two and that was the same year that I had joined the police service. And it was, you know, very much instilled in training that um this is something that we protect and we adhere to the principles of these laws. And as time would go by, on occasion, uh, we would breach these these laws. Um, I would say, not to my knowledge, intentionally, but sometimes uh, a little bit of police overreach can happen. And the courts would rule on those cases and set precedent that where there's a violation, even a slight violation, of those rights of individuals um, in cases where people were charged, those those cases would be dismissed because that's the way the courts felt the importance of the breaches of these these uh, rights needed to go with charges. So there there are fundamental fundamental or foundational um, laws that we have in this country. So 
when medical mandates are being issued by the provinces, they can create new laws, but these these laws are now in conflict with the charter. And that leaves a, um, a real predicament as to um, trying to do two opposing things at the same time. If you're going to if you're going to value your oath, follow the Police Services Act, and act in accordance with the Canadian Charter, these medical mandates are 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So herein lies our problem. Right. So let's let's if we can address some specifics. Um, and I don't know if you're in a position to do that. But so, for example, there was a um, an individual out in the east end of Toronto uh, who was visiting. I believe it was a tea uh, shop, a bubble tea shop, and um, uh, he was approached by police. Later arrested, I believe they asked him for identification. He, I don't believe he provided that. We know later that that individual took his own life in his home. Uh, we don't know what the connection was, um, you know, to the uh, to the arrest, if any, whether he had previously underlying mental health conditions. I don't know the particulars, uh, but it, it it the idea that police could come up to you. And simply ask, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Ask for identification. Um, goes above and beyond the, you know, the, the pale. Um, what are your thoughts on that? If you can speak to that case or if, hypothetically to that type of situation and how it was handled. Yeah, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to discuss that case um, with detail and specifics because I'm not familiar with all the details. I have some vague understanding of what happened there. But again, um, it, it is clear that that um, different officers are taking different approaches on this issue, whether you're in agreement with feeling the necessity to follow your oath, the Police Services Act and the Charter, or you feel that um, you were handed some medical mandates and that seems to be the direction that you need to go in. Um, th- this is causing uh, an extremely high level of stress within the police agency. Uh, I've had a number of officers reach out to me personally and, and discuss the issue. And again, I have my opinion and my belief on how these matters should be handled. And I, I'm in agreement that, uh, that our charter is our foundational principle. And if we start breaching that charter, the government does have, the federal government does have the um, the ability to suspend your rights from time to time as necessary, but they need to demonstrate why they have um, suspended your rights. And it has not, uh, the necessity has not come forward by our federal or provincial governments, we have not been provided with the necessity and the rationale behind why this is necessary. In my opinion, and in many officers' opinion, the data does not support that. And that's going to depend on um, different people will have different viewpoints on that. And that'll be dependent on the data that you're looking at. I certainly look at a different data set I have a background in forensic investigations, and so for me, 
I choose to look at factual data. I, I choose to go to the direct sites where I can get my data. And if you're going to follow data provided by mainstream media, I believe that um, mainstream media is the huge cause of the problem here. I think there's a lot of manipulation in the media. There's a lot of fear-mongering. And that the, the, what you're hearing in the mainstream media is not supporting the true data. I, I would agree. I, I think that they are in the fear business. And um, all we hear is this steady drumbeat about cases and new cases uh, with no context. And the numbers, just on the face of them, can be frightening. But without the context, how many of those cases or, or, or positive tests, in other words, not infections, positive tests are false positives? How many of those are symptomatic versus asymptomatic? How many resulted in hospitalization? Uh, so simply to rely on new cases, which seems to be driving a lot of the, the lockdown uh, uh, measures and, and restrictions, uh, just seems to me to be patently absurd. I, I will maybe delve into some of your forensic expertise a little bit later in the hour, but let me ask you just to give me, to get your reaction when you saw, as as many or most of us did, this video, for example, of a um, a gentleman out west who was trying to play a little pond hockey or or a little shinny on the ice and was uh, tackled uh, by police and 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 roughed up for because he happened to be holding a hockey stick, basically. What, what was your reaction when you saw that? I was I was very appalled by what I had seen. Now I understand that there's some commentary on that that uh, the things that had precluded what was seen in the video, the um, maybe five or ten minutes of discussion or something that was going on prior to that is something that we don't see and we're not familiar with. But I I, I know what I did see in the video that had come out that was exposed. And um, I, I found that very, very shocking and very unprofessional in behavior. And I just I just uh, could not understand the necessity behind a lot of what had happened there. It was, I found it very disturbing. And I just could not see myself having been in a situation like that. I, I just could not have seen myself in that profession, reaching that point, utilizing that type of force uh, in in that situation. But again, I didn't see what precluded that. Uh, but um, again, what I did see was um, unprofessional behavior. And um, I seriously question, seriously question um, a lot that had gone there, uh, gone on there on the side of the police. But that wasn't as shocking to me as the following day uh, when I had heard the comments made by the chief of police in, uh, in Calgary. And, and that I found disturbing as well. I, what I would have expected to find was um, senior management of an organization say, you know, we're going to look into this matter and we, we need to investigate this matter thoroughly before coming to any conclusions. There needs to be a, a thorough insight or investigation into this. But and Vincent, maybe you could regale. What, sorry, I was just well, going to ask you to regale us as to what he said. Was made was similar to, um, you know, we, we're, we're just doing our job. We're just enforcing the law. And 
the and, and that that's the the necessity of the agency. Um, the, the necessity of the police agency is far more than enforcing the law. Um, police officers are really the the guardians of the fabric of society. And absolutely, there's a duty incumbent on police services to understand the moral principles in play and to promote the moral courage to keep that fabric of our society from tearing itself apart, especially in times when this type of contradiction of legality comes into play. But I will say I was very impressed uh, over the last few days by the new mandates coming down from the province of Ontario of lockdown restrictions, the response, I'm not impressed by that, but I'm impressed by the response that came out, and it came out by the Ontario Chiefs of Police Association. And that's an indicator that says the chiefs within the province, they're getting together and they're discussing this issue, and they're saying we should take a provincial agreement approach between all of our police agencies and how we're going to address this issue. And I think they did it very professionally. And I think they, um, they really um, made the right decision when they said, we are not going to be stopping people who are walking down the street. We are not going to be pulling over cars to check randomly. And we are not going to be entering your homes. And I think that was a very professional um, very wise approach, and uh, they really, they really did the good thing by by making their enforcement action clarified. Agreed, agreed. Vincent, if I could get you to just hold on, we'll take a quick timeout. Vincent Gersey's retired senior Ontario Provincial Police Constable, one of the uh, founding members of Police on Guard for Thee. But again, let's be clear, he's speaking uh, for himself, not behalf on behalf of any group or organization. He's speaking on behalf of himself. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening. And so are you to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, George Freund, a blogger, a broadcaster. You may be familiar with his uh, podcast, Conspiracy Cafe. He'll be here to talk about the connection between Jim Jones and the People's Temple, uh, this murderous cult. We we know how that turned out in uh, the jungles of Guyana back in 1978. Anyway, Jim Jones was, it turns out, a very powerful and influential uh, political player inside the California Democratic uh, machine. And uh, we will uh, be discussing that again with George coming up in the second hour. Vincent Gersey stays with us, the um, one of the founding members of Police on Guard for Thee, a retired senior Ontario provincial police constable. You were you were uh, before the break, Vincent, you were talking about the Ontario chiefs of police coming forward and, and basically saying we're not going to be stopping people on the street. We're not going to be stopping cars. We're not going to be going into into homes. Uh it would seem to me that if if they felt compelled to make that statement, that 
maybe they were being asked to do those things and and they were sort of pushing back. Uh, what, do, what do you think? Do you th- is, in other words, is there kind of an internal struggle going on? Is there pushback happening here? Well, I'm not. I'm not privy to the reason why they made the statement they made. I'm very happy that they made it. I think it was the right statement to make. I think it was a very positive statement. And there's indications in there that that there's an understanding that that would be a charter violation breach and that um, that they're, they're not interested in violating your charter rights. And they're coming out collectively and stating that. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It was, it was, uh, the first time I've seen a comment like that since this has been begun almost a year ago. So that, that's a, that's a, a push in a great direction. And it's, it's certainly not overreach. And, um, I think it, I think it came out professionally as, as they always are. And it, it's clear direction. It's clear direction to all the officers across the province that they're going to take a, a uniform position on that. And it was necessary. And it, it, it could have come out the other way. But I think they took a wonderful approach. Well, let's contrast what's happening here with what's happening in Quebec. And I know that you served uh, with the, the Ontario Provincial Police. Uh, but your colleagues in Quebec are being asked to uh, I mean, they are going into people's houses uh, in one incident that we know of. Uh, there may be more that I'm not aware of. But um, why do you suppose that the police in Quebec are are not taking the same types of position that the police here in Ontario are? I mean, that's a very I know I'm asking you to speculate, but um, well, the decisions are being reached across the country, province by province. So that province has made a decision that. This is the way they want to execute it, and this is the way they want to roll with their their strategy. Uh, Ontario's taken a different position, and every province has taken a different position because these mandates are coming down on a provincial level. So every province is working it in its own way. And in Quebec, they they are using telewarrants. So if an officer goes to a home and has grounds to feel the need to go in, they'll request that information over a phone and get access over a phone by speaking to a justice of the peace. But we don't do that here in Ontario. And, and thankfully we don't, uh, that that's, that would just be again, in my opinion, very wrong and very invasive. Um, I mean, this, this goes back to a, a previous issue that we were discussing. So if we really start from the beginning, it's really initiating with the PCR test. And my science background really says, hey, take a look at this test. How accurate is this test? Um, Is this test really designed for viruses? And in doing so, um, it's supposed to be run up to a certain cycle rate. So the polymerized chain reaction test, PCR test, um, we don't know what rate it's being run at when you get a test because that's not something anybody has information too, but if you run it at a rate too high, um, even if you listen to what Anthony Fauci said in the U.S., if you run it beyond a certain rate of 35, you're getting very inaccurate information. So there's really no argument that the PCR test is somewhere between 50 to 95 percent inaccurate, and it seems to be run at higher test cycle rates than it should. Um, so that that immediately throws a 
uh, a flag out saying what is going on here why why are why are people relying on tests that have a very high incidence of inaccuracy that that in in a police investigation you'd look at that and say i can't go anywhere with that evidence you know i i wouldn't i wouldn't get a conviction based on that type of accuracy that's so, that's so true that's so that's, true that's, uh, that's the beginning that's the beginning of the whole thing is we're talking about numbers so you do tests and you get numbers but if those numbers are extremely inaccurate then what good are they and then you say now we have more numbers and the numbers are going up and they're getting higher and higher well what what does that mean if they're so inaccurate so that's, right that's if you're going to test and more it, people you're going to get more positives more false positives correct and more, so more cases so, to flaunt as the rationale for these these restrictions so you start off with numbers by numbers of tests and then they translate to cases a positive test is a case well if if a positive test is so inaccurate and it's giving you you know more tests equals more inaccurate data more inaccurate data gives you more cases more cases that's inaccurate and what does that mean? What does a case mean? Now you have to take a look at that and say, what does that mean? Does that mean a dead body? Does that mean somebody in the ICU? No, that means somebody tested positive, so they call it a case. So it doesn't mean someone's in the hospital. It doesn't mean someone's even in, um, symptomatic. It just means they tested positive to a number that is highly inaccurate. Correct, correct. And then among the truly positive cases, and we don't know what those numbers are, but a true positive uh, is, is, you know, is that person symptomatic? Are they showing symptoms? Uh, Are they likely to spread? And uh, if they are symptomatic, do they require hospitalization or is it basically like a bad cold? Right. So I look at the first set of numbers. I look at the second set of numbers. And then I can just ignore everything else. I, I mean, you can get into it, and there are many, many other things you can look at, But uh, and they're all telling me the same thing. But I can skip over them all, and I can just go to the last number that I want to look at, and that is year to date. And so now that the year is over, we're into a new year, we can look at, let's just look at a three-year trend or a four-year trend or a five-year trend and just say, how many how many more deaths have we had over the last year since this became problematic in February or so. Right, many, excess how deaths. More, how many excess total total case count mortality have we had in this country? And the average listener or the average person who's been following mainstream media is going to think we should have a spike. We should see this jump in numbers. It's not there. There's no spike. There's no change. And if we're talking about 200 and something thousand deaths, I don't know the exact number. I don't have it with me uh, in front of me. But if you if you look at the, the case average over just the last three years, the numbers are very close. Um, one year they go up a little bit. The next year they go down a little bit. Right. Very Due close. to population and demographic change. That's correct. And if you were to look at that on a graph, um, you would you would think that they're almost exactly the same. You you visually can't even see the difference on a bar graph, but 
based on what you're hearing in the media, you would expect to see a huge jump in the death count. And that's not visible. So that's a telltale sign that, um, that this is not what the media is making out to be. Uh, that in connection with the other piece of evidence that I refer to as the, the narrative control within the media, there is only one narrative that can be spoken. And if any doctors, nurses, or professionals come out to speak contrary to that narrative, they are immediately demonized and shut down. And Right. They um, have their experts, their pre-approved list, and anyone else who wants to bring forth their experts, that's not allowed. Even though those other alternative viewpoints, those people are eminently qualified, maybe just as or more qualified than some people that are sitting around this cold, this uh, science table. That's correct. And if we just look the other day, um, member of provincial parliament, Roman Baber, had left the Conservative Party with a note. Actually, he was booted out of the Conservative Party. He had brought forward information clearly indicating that the lockdowns are causing far more damage and more deaths than this virus. And he had presented data directly from Stats Canada, and and this is all valid data that he's presenting. And he was demonized and, and harassed by the Premier. And you're looking at this going, he's actually presenting factual data. Just look at the data, right. you know, before you make a cost benefit any- analysis, which should have been performed in March a year ago. Yes. Yes. Correct. So we're, we're approaching another break here. We'll um, we'll take a, a quick time out when we come back. I want to ask you to maybe to, you know, to step back from your role as a, a, a former police officer and just ask you what. What do you think is really going on here? What is this really all about? Vincent Gersey's senior retired OPP constable and uh, the one of the founders of Police on Guard for Thee. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Vincent Gersey's from, well, he's speaking on behalf of himself, but he is one of the founding members of Police on Guard for Thee. You can check them out. They have a Facebook page. Just go to Facebook, Police on Guard for Thee. Um, so when you when you look at the, uh, the, the the data as a a former forensic investigator, and it doesn't add up in terms of the response, what, what do you think is really happening here? What, what's why are they doing this? They the the the, uh, the the ruling elite, if you will, the the, uh, the the government. Why are they doing this? Well, I, I think it's best to to look at it as. Um sort of an abstract photograph or an ink blot. You know, you may interpret it as one thing and I may interpret it as something else, but I like to specifically look at the data. And if you look at the data and you start adding the data up in your head, you can come to a conclusion of where it's taking you or the image that you see. And I may come up with a different image. 
But there's a lot of other data that we haven't spoken about. And I believe that other data starts to paint a picture of where we're going and what is behind this. And you may end up with a slightly different image than what I see, but I think um, you'll you'll get the general gist. So we're talking about um, um, PCR tests, a number, uh, case count, that's a number. But let's get away from the medical side. Let's look at our financial situation. If you look at Canadian, the Canadian debt load that we currently have and what we had eight or ten months ago, it is a horrific amount of money. And if you think that the majority of that money went towards COVID relief program, then you're incorrect. We, we've chalked up a tremendous amount of debt over a very short period of time. And Canadians need to ask themselves, where did that money go? Why was that money spent? And why are we now in such heavy debt? So that's part of the image. The other image is why are all the small businesses going out of business? Why are they being given certain mandates to essentially crush and kill these businesses? Do you feel like the government is nursing you back to health? Or do you feel like there's a jackboot on the side of your face? Take a look at that. What image does that create? Um, is the government really supporting and nurturing businesses within the province, within the country? And it appears that a lot of businesses are shutting down. It appears that the largest, wealthiest businesses are doing very well. When you have a brisket barbecue restaurant that is surrounded by 200 officers and 10 horses to make sure that nobody gets in there to get brisket, while next door you have a thriving Costco that's filled to capacity. There's something wrong with that picture. Why is there so much fear? And the main question I would ask is, why is the media exceptionally biased and completely controlled and paid for by our government? Why is it you can't get out an alternative narrative? Why is it that in a crisis like this, where you would want for um, any time you're trying to work on a solution to a problem, including in policing matters, including in forensic investigations, you're always open for all the data. You want all the data, get as much data and information as you can. Why is this data, some data being suppressed by professional agencies, doctors, nurses, other professionals? Why are those voices being silenced? And then how does that tie into event 201? which took place back in October, November of last year. Or right. This was the, the tabletop exercise, uh, Bill right. Gates Foundation, John Hop Johns Hopkins University, uh, I believe um, an agency affiliated with the World Health Organization, all sort of played out this scenario, how they would respond to the next pandemic, which, of course, occurred just two months later. That's right. And, and my takeaway from Event 201 was um, 
the narrative in why the media needs to be so tightly controlled, why they needed to completely control the narrative. And they never give a reason behind that. They just said, we need to con- completely control the narrative. That That's very interesting, and that's very telling. We need to ensure that our story gets out and no other story. So there are many, many smoking guns and many inconsistencies. Um, enough for me to point the finger at who the target is behind this? Uh, no, no. It, it, it's a large picture, and, and I don't claim to have any real understanding on who's behind it, what's behind it, how it's all un- unraveling. But it, it's clear that, that something something else is piggybacking on, on this COVID agenda. I, I agree. I, I've, I've, radically. I've re, uh, said this ad nauseum on the program that uh, that this this is being used as cover. Not that, that that people people are dying from COVID. There's no question, and this is a serious health situation. That and we need to mitigate risk, and we need to uh, follow some protocols, not necessarily the ones that are being uh, handed down in a very ham-fisted manner, but this is being used as cover for a number of different agendas. And you talk about small businesses being shut down while box stores are flourishing. Amazon, of course, is flourishing. What it amounts to is is a massive transfer of wealth, Uh, once again, from the the middle class, the working class, uh, to the, um, I won't say the 1%, it's not the 1%, it's the one one thousandth of the one percent it's that old saying right never let a crisis go to waste well we have a crisis and it is being used and i would say not not for good not in our interest yes that's that's correct all right we uh we are up this was a short segment we'll take uh, one quick time out come back one final segment remains with vincent gersey's and uh, again, just a reminder, George Freund joins us in the second hour. We'll discuss Jim Jones and the People's Temple and his influence within the Democratic machine in California. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. So, Vincent, for you personally to come forward like this, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that was not an easy decision. Um, can you share with us how your your other colleagues, either active duty or or senior or retired, um, how they have responded to your coming forward? Are they happy about it? Dissatisfied? Um, so far, all of the comments that I've received from both active members that have reached out to me and other retired members that have reached out to me. They've all been very positive, very favorable comments. And uh, again, those individuals reaching out to me feel similar, similarly to the way I feel on this issue. And what about, uh, again, I'm asking you to speculate, you're retired now. I don't know what how much contact you have with uh, colleagues who may now be in, in police management. Um, but what are you hearing within the ranks? Is is there a, any is there any conflict between a police management and and the rank and file members of the of the various police forces? 
with regards to how what they are being asked to do and 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 um, how they are being asked to enforce these these uh, health measures. Well, I personally had a number of ind- individuals reach out to me direct, and they are from other police forces, not just the one that I used to work for, but other agencies. And yeah, there is there is conflict within the agencies. There's there's conflict, and um, it, it is largely due to the medical mandates that are issued, which go in contravention of the the Chartered Police Act and the oath. So um, this is this is an issue that's really putting the members in in, in the conflict situation. Uh, a number of officers are indicating that they they see the issue, they completely see the bigger picture and the issue and how this is rolling out, and that there are those other ones that don't. They don't see the issue. So th- this is where the problem really lies, is that those individuals who, who really can add up the numbers, look closely at factual data, rather than thinking emotionally or being driven by mainstream media narrative who can actually do a little bit of homework and look at the supporting data and you know i say for your listeners whether you whether you take this position or you don't take this position um, i really ask everybody to just do a little bit of homework do your own data without having a preconceived notion of what you think it really is and you're going to discount the other side. My position has always been to look at both sides, always look at both sides or look at multiple sides and come up with the most accurate data to support, you know, which, which position is supported by the majority of accurate data. Um, so whether it's on a mask issue, you know, are masks effective or not effective? Um, you know, if there are studies on either side of the coin, well, how, what is the quality of the study? How in-depth is the study? And how many studies are there? And, you know, where there's overwhelming evidence to support one issue over another, well, that would be the issue that I go with. So it's a matter of reaching out, reaching out and, and collecting your own data, and it's not hard to do. Um, collect your own data, but certainly don't, don't take anything that comes off of mainstream media because it's, it's not accurate. And, there's uh, other agendas at play coming through mainstream media. So do your own homework. And um, if I'm going to put you on a uh, on a path of, you know, you can start here, I always recommend James Corbett of the Corbett Report. He's a Canadian living in Japan. I find his work to be exceptional. And I agree. He, al- he always um, shows his source data. So he always in his show notes, he'll say, here, if I'm speaking about this issue, here's where I got all my data. So you can go check in the show notes and you'll see that what I'm saying is true because it's all available for you to find. So he's a good starting point. And from there, branch out. There is a new newspaper that's just come out in uh, the Toronto area, branching out across Canada, and it's called Druthers, druthers.net is the website for the free paper and the paper is available free for those people that want it. And it, it has some really great articles on all the subject matter as well. When you see what's happening in this country, uh, are you fearful that 
we're not going to return to the old normal and and that there will be a continuation of and even perhaps even a ratcheting up of these types of measures, regardless of what the data data shows? Um, I, I do have concerns, but um, I don't look at it as a countrywide concern. I really look at it as a global concern right now because uh, all of the Western countries and just about every country really is affected in the same manner. It, it's a global issue, and I, I don't think that um, – I think it'll be a while before individual countries start to take a – a position, a specific, or maybe shift in direction in their position. And right now, I, I think there aren't enough individuals who can look at the data and fully understand the manipulations behind the data. It's going to take enough people waking up to really understand that. And, you know, I, I have a, um, there was an old poem that was done by Pastor Martin Neimoller, who was a concentration camp victim in 1937 and 1945, and he had written something, and it's been it's been tweaked and remade for this situation. And I'd just like to read it. It'd take me about 30 seconds to read this. Yes, go ahead. He said, he said, first they came for your freedom of movement, but you were free to move around, so you didn't speak out. Then they came for your freedom of assembly, but you were still free to gather with friends, so you didn't speak out. Then they came after small businesses, but you didn't own one, so you didn't speak out. Then they came for your freedom to protest, but you didn't care. You never protest, so you didn't speak out. Then they came for your freedom of religion. You weren't religious, so you didn't speak out. And then they came for your freedom of choice, but you still had choice, so you didn't speak out. And then they came and attacked your freedom. And there was no one left to speak out for you. And that's something everybody that's, needs to fully understand. And we just have a couple minutes here, Vincent. Your ancestors came from Lithuania, I believe. Uh, and they they lived through, uh, you know, the, the, this type of totalitarian nightmare that, I mean, it, it hasn't arrived here yet, thank God. But um, what what lessons have you taken from that and from your from your ancestors? Well, there are incredible similarities to people fleeing one country during a communist Soviet invasion and all that occurred following that to a country that is beginning to violate its charter rights of the individuals within the country without stipulating a reason behind why, without justification behind why, and the direction that that can take the country when your media is all chatting the same narrative with no, um, with social media blocking dissenting voices, with um, your, your country operating in the situation in which we're in currently, moving in a direction that seems similar. I have been approached by a number of individuals who have come from European uh, pre-communist countries that have fled communism to come here to say they're watching it seeming to 
grow here. They're seeing the same thing that appears to be growing actively. And it's very concerning if, if in fact, that is the direction we're going. But it, uh, we're not there yet. But the telltale signs that led to revolutions of the past appear to be on our doorstep. Uh, likewise, I've I've talked to a number of people who escaped communist regimes or totalitarian regimes of one sort or another, and uh, they do see eerie and disturbing similarities when when they witnessed how those movements in those countries, communism, uh, how they began, and that that drip drip drip, uh, and it starts the way we're seeing it start here. So we have to be uh, vigilant. Vincent, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. And I, uh, I, uh, I thank you for your, uh, for your courage. And we, I hope we can talk again. Thank you so much. And I'll just leave with a, a closing note from Voltaire, who said, those who can be convinced to believe absurdities can be convinced to commit atrocities. We'll leave it there with those uh, profound and uh, disturbing words. Thank you again, Vincent. Thank you. All right. When we come back, George Freund on Jim Jones, the People's Temple and the Democratic Machine in California. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood-paneling electric fireplace and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Welcome to the program. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer. Ryan White is our live stream producer. We are live streaming on YouTube tonight. The channel is called Strange Planet. And just um, a heads up that we are slowly moving things over to a different platform for obvious reasons. We are now officially on Rumble. So if you go to rumble.com, and uh, my channel there is called Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Uh, I'm also on Gab, uh, still on Twitter, but uh, migrating over to Gab. The Jonestown Massacre occurred on November the 18th, 1978, when more than 900 members of an American cult called the People's Temple died in a mass suicide murder under the direction of their leader, Jim Jones. It took place at the so-called Jonestown Settlement in the South American country of Guyana. Jones had founded what became the People's Temple in Indiana in the 1950s, then relocated his congregation to California in the 1960s. In the 1970s, following negative media attention, the powerful, controlling preacher moved with some 1,000 of his followers to the Guyanese jungle, where he promised they would establish a utopian community. Again, November 18, 1978, U.S. Representative Leo Ryan, who had gone to uh, Jonestown to investigate claims of abuse, was murdered along with four members of his delegation. That same day, Jones ordered his followers to ingest poison-laced punch while armed guards stood by. Prior to the uh, terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, 
The uh, tragedy at Jonestown marked the single largest loss of U.S. civilian lives in a non-natural disaster. Now, most of us are at least somewhat aware of uh, these details, but what many of us aren't aware of is that Jim Jones wasn't just some murderous madman in the jungle. He was a political force with tremendous influence inside the Democratic Party machine, specifically in California. And that's why, and that's what we're going to discuss, uh, at least for the next little while. George Freund is a great friend of the program. He is a fiercely independent investigator, researcher, an award-winning blogger and a broadcaster who uh, sits in from time to time on uh, the Power Hour, Power Hour Radio. And uh, his uh, website where you can read his blog is conspiracy-cafe.com. George Freund, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Well, I'm very perplexed because, uh, you know, this topic is hand in glove with what you've just been discussing. I took my oath in 1979, three years before our Constitution, and uh, intelligence studies took up a lot of my time after that. So I'm very familiar with the way things work, far and above more than what you'd ever do as a uniformed police officer or peace officer anywhere. So for me, you know, I've already seen where we're going and I've not taken the Kool-Aid. We woke up last year in either a North Korean prison camp or something equivalent to Jonestown. And we're not in a North Korean prison camp. So I'm prepping up for an interview on Power Hour Nation for Thursday. I'm going to interview the author of the book, Cult City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and Ten Days That Shook San Francisco. He didn't give me a copy of the book. He gave me a Glenn Beck interview with him. And the last thing he said on the interview, you know, just really boils your coffee. When you can so it's visit very... your family, yeah. you're in a cult. You can't visit your family. What are you in? And it isn't Kansas. It's a cult. And when you look at the direct connection between the political power establishment of today and you look at where it was back in the 70s, the same players, and they are in control. And we have to look at what are they going to do when they get that control. And I can tell you it isn't going to be pretty. As a reporter, I have sources, too. There's some things your previous guests couldn't answer, but my sources have already told me from executive management and the police, and that's why our police chiefs have been so resolute to stand firm. Because the next step was they were preparing to unleash the army and the police upon us down the road. There's five steps to this process of this regeneration of the world. Advertising, we had that at the beginning last year. Propaganda. All these certain drugs don't work anymore. You can't use them. It's better to die a martyr and be intubated, but you can't use these drugs. Propaganda. Then we get to the stage we're in now is coercion, where we have to be coerced to go along with the narrative. Why? Because we're in a cult. 
when you see the little circles painted on the ground, the social distancing, the wearing of masks, the dehumanization. If I was taking you in as prisoners of war or taking you to Guantanamo for a while in a previous war, you would be facing things like that. You're being reprogrammed. The four steps. Well, we are certainly, I would agree, we are certainly being conditioned. Yeah, um, big time. Yeah. And the fifth step is euthanasia. I reviewed some work from a Russian intelligence officer, a colonel. It's in Russian, but with great big subtitles for us. It's about 11 minutes long, explains it very well. I put it on my website, and he explains it very, very succinctly on what all this is, the collapse of the financial system, the Great Reset also resets the population and in his mind down to a billion with a hundred million being a more the controlling group so that means a good six billion of us got to get off this rock and that's part and parcel of what's going on the great soviet defector yuri bezmanov said when we take over the last step of the communist takeover. And you must remember, Jimmy Jones was a hardcore communist. Right. Not right. a Christian in any way, shape, No, or he disavowed Christianity. Big time. Uh, that's important because people think Jim Jones, they think Christian cult, Not and then cult. all Christians sort of get lumped in there. He had disavowed it. He was an, an avid or uh, an ardent communist. His plan was not to stay in Guyana. Uh, until uh, the uh, congressman and his entourage showed up, they were preparing to flee to Russia, to the Soviet Union. Um, and, and we'll get into that. Um, but but I, I just I want to talk about because people may be asking, well, why are we talking about uh, Jim Jones and the temple, the people's temple, something that happened 43, 42 years ago and a little bit. Um, and here we are. On uh, the eve of the inauguration of, I call it the Kamala Harris administration, even Joe Biden has called it that numerous times. Is that, uh, you know, is that uh, senility or is is that his uh, him telling the truth? Uh, I think it's the latter. I think he's a placeholder. Uh, but uh, so why are we talking about Jim Jones on the eve of the uh, swearing in of the Kamala Harris administration. And so we have to go back to California in the 1970s. And as I say, people think of Jim Jones as this crazy cult leader in the jungle, but he was a powerful political force in California. So let's spend a little bit of time, if we could, talking about that. Oh, um, I'd love to do that, too. The other thing, uh, you know, one of the protest leaders is someone I know, we were in a movie together, and uh, he was my partner for the scene we did, and uh, that was Lamont Daigle. So I just, uh, you know, wish him well and honor and respect him for standing up for our rights and not being in Pastor Niemöller's explanation of how the world goes to hell for someone who's been there from the very, very beginning. We love you. We respect you. We honor you for what you've done, standing firm in a great storm. This whole thing is like the great things never die. Nazism never died. Communism never dies. And Jonestown, the cult, never dies. It's still alive. The people just fled, removed themselves, went into the shadows, 
And even though Jimmy Jones could command the president-elect, Jimmy Carter, to produce his wife, Rosalind, to meet him, Carter never mentioned this crisis in his memoirs, even though it was the biggest crisis in his presidency. That tells us something. I caught into this just by one of those Columbo things. You know, my mother liked Columbo. That was one of her favorite shows. And as a Mine too. Lad, Mine too. I loved it. You know, and then you find evidence. It taught you how to be a detective. I liked that. And when I took my investigator's course with some of the greats here in Ontario, uh, you know, I had a little bit of substance there just to show you what it means. The Guy Paul Moran case was the case of study. And I was the only student to ever say Guy Paul Moran was innocent. I was ridiculed, threatened, and all kinds of stuff. One of my classmates ended up being a federal cabinet minister, another one a chief of police in a large municipality near Toronto, and I was vilified because I thought he was innocent. And then many years later, they invented DNA testing, and he was precluded from the list of suspects. And last year, they announced the killer, and it wasn't E. Paul Moran through DNA. So just because you're alone or in a small group, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means you're alone or in a small group. You have to deal with facts. Evidence is a compass. It takes you where you want to go. And when I started to hear one of these bizarre facts about this case, it was Diane Feinstein, the lady who's really big on gun control in the United States, had a concealed carry permit once. Why? Well, I spit up my coffee. I choked. And I go, what? And then I really started to look into one of the great assassinations that's never really talked about too much. And that is the murder of Mayor Moscone of San Francisco and Harvey Milk, one of the supervisors. Right. County Board Supervisor, the first um, openly gay man to be elected, uh, I think, to any position in the United States, Harvey Milk. So there. Right. Absolutely. So, yes. So George Moscone and Harvey Milk uh, were both shot dead in San Francisco. Uh and um, that was in 1978, after the Jonestown Correct. Massacre. Correct. November 27, 1978. I was watching a news report from way back then to just say that the cult had sent out death squads to get rid of people that were threatening to them or dangerous, you know, dead men tell no tales. And Mayor Moscone was very much, everybody was in with this cult, because they did everything on a micro scale, what we are about to see unfold Wednesday, whether or not the inauguration is peaceful or not, is he could bring busloads of people to vote and win in a precinct, because you just go from one to the other to the other. He could have street thugs available, Nation of Islam. We call them Black Lives Matter today, so he could overturn anything. He was the master of his dominion. And what limited his dominion is difficult to say. Right. So we, we should point out that in the mid-70s, uh, Jim Jones had moved his people's temple to San Francisco. They were headquartered there. They started in Indiana, moved to California. And, and somehow, because he was such a charismatic uh, individual, he managed to uh, influence uh, Mayor Moscone, Harvey Milk, as you say, he was able to get out the vote for these individuals. He was then, I think, named to the San Francisco um, Board of Supervisors. The uh, became like the Human Rights Commissioner, if you can he believe was housing that. Commissioner. And housing, right? Housing. That's it. Housing Commissioner. And uh, uh, so, 
And carry on. You were talking. Mayor Moscone, the women of the cult, to enjoy here and there. And uh, he knew how to grease the palms of politicians to make sure funds are flowing and finances are flowing at many, many levels. Jerry Brown, the governor, was a devotee. Willie Brown, a future mayor of San Francisco, speaker of the California legislature, was a devotee. And as you said in the intro, a very dangerous liaison was Camilla Harris, was his mistress. And was was uh, Willie Brown Jr.'s mistress. Let's yeah. Be, yeah, we need to be clear about that. Right. Now, we have a very dangerous situation forming where we have this cult taking control, trying to Sovietize or make into a communist world uh, the world that someone's going to take it over. And Jimmy Jones seemed to be geared for that. And he felt this intrusion with the congressman, Ryan, was just destroying his whole worldview, his whole power structure. So he killed him, wiped them right out, five killed, right at the landing strip, hunted down some of the other ones into the woods. They were lucky to escape with their lives. But what would the cult want to do when you kill the major prophet? They'd want revenge. They'd want some sort of atonement. The cult didn't die, it just went into the woodwork and hid out there. People just adopted a new philosophy, distanced themselves from his name, those words, but the people that he influenced still hold power today. And they're going to get the keys not only to the treasury, but the keys to the armory. They had a nuclear annihilation fantasy as a cult, which wasn't hard to have back in the late 50s, early 60s. So, you know, that's not unusual, but is it to run away from it or to actually kindle the flames? And then in time, one of these initiates will have the launch codes. Nancy Pelosi had a brother-in-law, Ron Pelosi. He was one of those supervisors back then. And Diane Feinstein was there. So let's start with her. That's what really got me going, is she had a gun. And her gun was the same make, model, and caliber as Dan White's. There were two Dan White is is the was charged and convicted with the uh, with the double homicide. Yes, and he had uh, he had resigned from the county board of supervisors, and yet they were making it sound as if he was angry because he, I guess, was fired and was take, seeking out his revenge on Mayor Moscone and and Harvey Milk. But in fact, he had resigned from from that position, which sort of led to some speculation that, you know, there was more to this story than, and this assassination than we're being told. Big time. With the experience we've had at looking at John Kennedy's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination, we see very, very clearly how narratives are created, how evidence is destroyed. And that was another thing that just carried us along. Diane Feinstein turns in her gun to a UN weapons control program. It's melted down. Dan White's gun was with the San Francisco Police Department. It disappeared. It's like, well, what are the odds? You know, two firearms disappear. 
There were two types of bullets used, jacketed hollow points and lead. There were two different wound patterns. One of them were non-fatal, and I believe those were the ones that were fired by Dan White, that he entered the office of each of these individuals, open fire at close range. Harvey Melk is supposed to have had his hands up in a defensive manner, and those wounds were non-fatal. They went to the ground. Feinstein's explanation is she was first on the bodies, and she put her fingers in the bullet holes to try to save their lives. Except that contradicts the second wound patterns. Two shots to the head at close range. There was no head. So her story about trying to do something to save their lives makes absolutely no sense because as soon as you walk in that room, you're just going to see right away they're gone. There's nothing you can do. So what happened? If she was a member in good standing of this cult, which she was, she got an honor plaque donated or given to Jimmy Jones so that he could be honored like as the uh, god that he thought he was, was she a devotee who was tasked with eliminating these people? There's a very, very significant thing that happened on the landing strip where Congressman Ryan was assassinated. The guards, or assassins, the armed people from the cult, finished off the wounded, which may have included everyone, with shots to the head. And we have the same thing happening here with these two individuals, that they were finished off with shots to the head in the manner that the People's Temple would do it. Now, uh, George, we're heading into a break here. Let me ask you, now, are these... Uh, these are, this is very obviously a serious allegation, and it is simply an allegation. It is a theory. Uh, is this also a theory shared by Daniel J. Flynn, the author of Cult City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and 10 Days that Shook San Francisco, or is this your own uh, theory? Oh, this is my own. And, uh, you know, it just, there's a lot of things that just don't add up and make sense. And,. When we well, we'll get into some. We'll get into some of those uh, when when we come back. Uh, George Freund, uh, independent investigator, award-winning blogger, and uh, occasional host of Power Hour Nation. My guest, as we continue to discuss Jim Jones, the People's Temple, and the Democratic Party machine. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. George Freund is with us, and uh, we are talking about uh, Jim Jones, the uh, cult leader uh, whose murder spree, uh, the murder-suicide of over 900 people, American citizens, many of them children, in Guyana back in 1978, and the political influence and power that he held in California among state Democrats there. Uh, he um, he managed, or many at least give him credit for um, Mayor Moscone's tight victory in the 1975 mayoral runoff. Uh, Jim Jones was then appointed head of the San Francisco Housing Authority, which is a pretty, a pretty powerful position. He was praised as a hero of social justice and a crusader for racial equality. 
and he became an important figure in democratic politics. And among his advocates was Harvey Milk, the much celebrated uh, Harvey Milk, the first openly gay man elected to uh, office in the United States. He was elected to the County Board of Supervisors. He was uh, a newcomer to San Francisco. He was formerly uh, a Goldwater Republican, and he became politically radical in California. And uh, he attended services at people's uh, the People's Temple dozens of times, and he wrote letters to Jones. Uh, Such greatness I have found in Jim Jones' People's Temple, Milk proclaimed. And of course, Milk wasn't Jones' only fan. Many powerful people, Governor Jerry Brown, columnist Herb Cain, Vice President Walter Mondale, all sought Jones' blessing and expressed, uh, expressed admiration for his dedication to racial equality and a better world. And uh, this is all laid out uh, in Daniel J. Flynn's book, Cult City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco. And uh, George, you mentioned Jimmy Carter, uh, President Jimmy Carter, and Rosalind Carter. Rosalind Carter was a fan. Um, I mentioned Harvey Milk singing the praises of Jim Jones, he actually wrote letters to President Carter defending Jones even after these disturbing reports of abuse emerged from the Jones town compound in Guyana. But um, Milk was, uh, as Flynn describes in his book, an aggressive municipal officer willing to play hardball. And uh, Jim Jones, this diabolical lunatic uh, uh, for the ages. So we were talking about now Senator Dianne Feinstein. At the time, she was also a member of the, uh, the the board of supervisors in San Francisco. After George Moscone's murder, the mayor, she would become mayor. And a, a pretty serious allegation. You are you are suggesting she is a suspect. She was a she did carry and conceal. She was a permit holder, despite being um, an, a, a rabid anti-gun. Uh, person, but at the time she she carried a gun, and you're saying it was the same um, model gun that was Make being carried caliber. by by uh, Dan White, the actual or the supposed assailant, who was uh, arrested and charged and convicted with their murders. Again, he was a member of the board of supervisors, and he had quit, and then supposedly got angry because he wanted his job back, and he would and they wouldn't give it to him. So this is supposedly the motive. So you're saying that the motive here is, well, what is it? Why, if, if Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone, Moscone were such devotees of Jim Jones, after Jones' uh, death and the and the uh, the suicide, mass suicide, why, why take out Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone? Because they knew the inside details, and they're a threat to the organization. In my opinion. But uh, it just, what, you know, her story just doesn't make sense. And we have to She was there. She was on the scene. She, she discovered the body. She tried to tend to the wounded. She said she placed her fingers in the, bullet in the wounds, in, in the bullet holes, in order to stop the bleeding. But as you pointed out... If they had two the, shots uh, to the head, there's nothing there to save. There's nothing to do. So it just doesn't make any sense. Right, right. And it's just one of those things that bother me, Columbo-style... 
how can that be? You know, you must see right away that if that's the case, that they're deceased. So either you're lying or, you know, maybe you're in some kind of panic-driven mode or something like that. But it just doesn't make sense. And, and the fact that you're devoted to the cult and you kill people the way the cult does with the coup de grace shots to the head like they did with Congressman Ryan is very disturbing. And all the people that came out of San Francisco then and still today seem to get a pass that this isn't discussed, it isn't a topic of conversation anywhere, anytime, even though these people are ascending to positions of great power. And when you look at the Democratic Party, it looks like and acts like a cult. No one can have a contrary opinion. Whoever decides, whatever is decided, that's just the way it is. And you're not entitled to any other thought process at all. I was supposed to interview another guest on Power Hour, but uh, with some of the political crises in the United States, that got bumped up. But, you know, this chap was a lifelong liberal, and he started to see the light, that there are inconsistencies in their belief systems. And one of his lifelong friends phoned him up and said, hey, is this true? Do you really believe this now? And he said, yes. And the guy hangs up the phone and will have nothing to do with him anymore because you left the reservation on how we were trained and taught to think. And I would look at it as a liberation that you come to terms with a truth because it sets you free. And you start to know where you went wrong and you try to do better. That's deeply disturbing that we would get into a situation which we're seeing all over the world now is that there is an opinion on something and that's all there is to it and no matter where you go you can't have another opinion and one of the things that we talk about the rights here of our constitution the america our bill of rights the americans will say the same thing and maybe people in other countries but one thing as well is the universal declaration of human rights Article 19, you have the right to freedom of opinion and expression, to hold opinions without interference, and to seek and receive and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. And we see these tech giants and media giants taking away that. That's a human rights violation. Our governments are doing the same thing, too, because we have the right to movement in our countries and between countries. That's Article 13. We have the right to peaceable assembly, which could include protesting, is Article 20. So we see a determined effort by the power structures in our lands and in other in the United States as well to behave in a cultish manner, to say, no, you don't. You don't have these human rights anymore. Well, who can say that? It's fundamental. It's always been fundamental. Right, and recent polling in Ontario suggests about 70%, this is uh, astounding and kind of distressing actually, 70% of Ontarians fully agree with the current um, lockdown measures, if you will. Uh, I want to get back, we just have a few minutes here left uh, before we break, but I want to get back to uh, 
the uh, the murder of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and uh, County Board Supervisor Harvey Milk, who was um, has been sort of raised to the level of sainthood uh, that he was sort of martyred. Uh, but there is no evidence, actually, that uh, Dan White, the supposed killer, was was homophobic. Uh, it it all had to do supposedly with the fact that he had been fired from his position. He wanted his job back. He wasn't given his job back, and then he he sought his revenge. Um, so there's no no evidence, as far as that we can tell, that that uh, the the motive was based in in Dan White being a a homophobic. Um, Now, I want to talk about getting back to uh, Dianne Feinstein, who was on the scene. Did you happen to raise that that issue with when you interviewed Daniel Flynn, the author of Cult City? No, I'll be doing that Thursday. Oh, Thursday. Okay. All right. It'll be interesting to see what... uh, what he makes of that. Uh, but the point is that in, 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 in the Bay area and, and this is the same, the same era, the same milieu that gave us, uh, in San Francisco, the, the Zodiac killer, the, the, uh, the Symbionese liberation army with the, the abduction of Patty Hearst. Um, it's interesting that all of these things came out of the, uh, the San Francisco Bay area during this time. Um, Rosalind Carter, she was summoned uh, to see Jim Jones. And uh, I want to ask you about that, pick up on that point when we come back. We're up against a break here. George Freund stays with us. Conspiracy Cafe, conspiracy-cafe.com, Power, Hour, and Nation. Award-winning blog writer will uh, continue to talk about Jim Jones, the People's Temple, and the Democratic Party right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, uh, George, this is a short segment. Let's just uh, talk a little bit about Rosalind Carter. Um, Now, this, I believe, was before Jimmy Carter was elected president. She was campaigning along with uh, the the vice presidential uh, nominee, Walter Mondale, when she went to see Jim Jones. Maybe there were other meetings after Carter was elected. I don't know. But what can you tell me about Rosalind Carter, apparently a big fan of Jim Jones? Well, the big thing is is that he, she was visiting, and he could command her appearance before him. So she, he went on the plane to meet her, and that's just an uncanny amount of power that a man can demand of the man who's running for president that I'm going to see your wife. And it was more an order than can I get an appointment. It had to be done on his terms, under his will, right away. What man has that sort of power? And the people that were his devotees and followers that are still in influence today should just be absolutely frightful, especially when we're looking at the way the world is today, which is pretty much being operated as a cult. The CIA was very big in mind control experiments in Los Angeles, especially, and San Francisco. It, it was just systemic back then. One author that I interviewed, Stephen Kinzer, wrote a book on Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's poisoner in chief, he calls him. And they had houses 
where they did the most extreme interrogation and entrapments. One was in New York City, one was in Miami, and I believe the third was in San Francisco. And a former DEA agent, George Hunter White, ran that operation. And for some fate of luck, because he was contracted to the CIA, his personal records were devoted or donated to his alma mater, and they were recovered there by the author. And his letter to Sidney Gottlieb of the CIA was very, very revealing. You know, he just says, fun, fun, fun. Where can a red-blooded American boy lie, cheat, torture, and kill, you know, for the government and get paid for it? He was quite quite open about what he had to say. These were very dark times back then, where drugs were being introduced into people, politicians, and anyone of influence, the LSD, of course, and uh, to mollify them and get control of them and trap them in sexual liaisons so that they could have future blackmail potential over people. It was a very, very ruthless era. There was nothing sugar and spice about this at all. And uh, we are just so naive to think that it can happen and to give people such as that power over us. So How do you suppose Jim Jones, because he was in California in these uh, in these circles, having this influence for over a decade, he arrived there in the 1960s, I believe, uh, and and had infiltrated or insinuated himself into the party machine. How is it? As charismatic as he was, uh, as 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 a, a, a sociopathic as he was, but how was he able to be to remain undetected? Why didn't anyone see that this was an absolute madman in their midst, or didn't they want to see it? Well, when you're in a company of mad people, another one doesn't make any difference, more or less. I came across another book. I don't have a copy. It's very expensive and very rare, it appears, even in paperback. It's close to $100 U.S. Was Jonestown a CIA medical experiment, a review of the evidence? And I think we pretty much know where the author's going with this. With other experiments that they were doing at the time, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. When we look at uh, the city hall of San Francisco, it looks like the Capitol building. You know, if if you didn't know too much, and I showed you a picture of it quickly, you might think it is the Capitol building in Washington. It's quite the similarity. Is this almost like a mind control experiment? The the bodies of the people from Jonestown were, you know, the memorials in Oakland. They don't they don't want them back. So you know, you're supposed to be victims of this, and you can't go back to your hometown. Uh, Congressman Ryan isn't really eulogized or remembered anywhere in San Francisco either. Even his spirit, his memory is persona non grata in in his own place. That's, you know, so he's another. That is peculiar, peculiar. We should should spend a few moments, not a few moments, I think the the remainder uh, of the hour talking about another high-powered Democratic politician, and that's Willie Brown Jr. He's been called the real Slick Willie because... Um, you know, he loves his uh, uh, beautiful women and despite being married for 25 years, a string of affairs and so forth. So the real slick Willie, Willie Brown Jr., a state assemblyman for 30 years, 15 of those years were as speaker, later, of course, became mayor of San Francisco, the first 
uh, black mayor of, of the city, uh, he too um, was enamored with uh, Jim Jones. I think at one time he called him sort of another Martin Luther King. Oh, that's quite correct. And, uh, you know, that in its own right is rather scary. But he said he's a combination of Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Chairman Mao. And the Chairman Mao part is interesting because we have allegations that Hunter Biden and the Democratic Party are under the influence of communist China. And that's something that should send shivers to our spine, too, because are they? It would appear that's very much the truth. And we're going to give complete and total power to someone who could be a foreign agent. But when Harris returned to uh, California, she became the mistress of Willie Brown Jr. when he was Speaker of the California Assembly. His political campaigns were funded by Dr. Carlton Goodlett, the owner of the Sun Reporter and several other pro-communist newspapers. Brown was elected as mayor of San Francisco and endorsed Harris's Marxist political philosophy. He guided Harris's political rise in California politics, leading to her election as California's Attorney General. Willie Brown Jr. was a well-known, longtime communist sympathizer. He was initially elected to public office with substantial help from the Communist Party of the USA. Today, okay, George, I've got, to, I've got to jump in here. We've got to take a quick time out. We'll come back and finish up. George Foyne stays with us as we continue to discuss Jim Jones, the People's Temple, and the Democratic machine in California. Back with more in a moment. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. I'm trying to remember in the uh, the Harvey Milk uh, movie, and Sean Penn played Harvey Milk, uh, there was no mention of Harvey Milk's connection with Jim Jones. Uh, that's kind of been removed from the public record. Um we were talking about Willie Brown, however, 30 years, a uh, an assemblyman in California, 15 as speaker, then later became the first black mayor of San Francisco. He was 60. Kamala Harris was 29. He, and he was married but separated when they had their affair in the mid-90s, 31 years his uh, junior. Uh, that's, you know, that that's fine. But uh, he really, I mean, to what extent did he, did he... Um, assist in in her career i i know that he appointed her to a couple of appeals boards the uh, the unemployment appeals insurance appeals board i think the california medical assistance commission both very lucrative uh positions i think she made something like four hundred thousand dollars with those two jobs in the course of a couple of years very high powerful or high paying jobs um and uh so is it fair to call Willie Brown Jr., Kamala Harris's mentor? Oh, definitely. Definitely. The connection with this cult is so dangerous. The fact that it is so heavily 
entrenched. Camilla Harris's husband works for a law firm that deals with something like 140 Chinese companies. And they say in you know, material that I have, like she would never get a security clearance because of these allegations in her past. And yet that doesn't apply if you're elected. So you'll just be, you know, perhaps one day the commander-in-chief with control to the launch codes. And you can't even get a security clearance. They wouldn't let her sweep the floor if you were trying to apply as in any other position. This okay, now I'm not, you know, I'm no fan of Kamala Harris, uh, particularly her, her policies. Uh, I think, she, you know, she was, she demonstrated that she was a, a failed candidate. She had to pull out of the Democratic uh, nomination because she simply wasn't gaining any traction, not even in her home state of California. And she's taken a great deal of uh, flack from uh, African American community in the United States because she withheld exculpatory evidence. For some people that were on death row, they they had to force her to release that information. Otherwise, these innocent people would have been executed um, or at least spent the rest of their lives in jail. Um, so there you know, the Lord knows there's a lot of a lot of issues that we could discuss in terms of Kamala Harris. She's also been described as the most um, radical uh, senator, maybe even more radical than than Bernie Sanders. But is it fair to suggest that just because Willie Brown Jr. was a was a, a an ally and a fan of this cult leader Jim Jones, that that she would hold those same views, isn't that a bit of a stretch? The thing about cults is they grab you by the throat and they don't let you go. There is no um, independence, no no freedom to come to any other method of operation except what the cult determines. So you just don't get to get up and leave. You don't get to, uh, to look at anything else. When you look at the, just the sadistic things that Jones did to cult members, like making four-year-old children eat their vomit, uh, sexually abusing straight male members of the cult, and then pulling their pants down to show their anatomy to other people, and such like that. It, it's, uh, you know, it, it's the low of the low using the Bible pages for toilet paper to demean Christians, you know, real Christians, starving people. It's, it's a very nasty business. I find it hard to believe that you would spend time in company with anyone who was in company like that if you had any moral standing or sway. If you were under the sway of the cult, well, that's a completely different thing. The ideal win for China would be to get someone in the White House that is one of their agents. That is the art of war. You could fight a war, win the war, without even firing any weapons. Because when the time comes that even there was a fight, the person you put in there will not respond to stimulus like any other leader would. And then you just own them. And it's a brilliant application of the art of war. And I look at that as we, the way we are, have been defeated. As I tried to explain at the beginning, and I'm glad I still have my little note here, Yuri 
Vesmanov, the KGB defector, telling you what the last stage of a communist takeover is. And you hear this word all the time, but it has no meaning to you. Normalization. So now you have a new normal, where everything's turned upside down. That's normal, because we own you now. And you know you're in the cult because we can't allow you to see your family anymore. So you have to bend to our wishes and our rules. And how far has this infiltration gone to news media, social media, politicians? I've only heard Jason Kenney say that he's not going to do the Build Back Better Great Reset. But world leaders all over are. Have they infiltrated that far? And if they have, it's almost like game over for us because we're on the receiving end of what's coming. And what's coming, I describe as a genocide. We're in the beginning steps. If I was in the 1930s and I shut out a thriving middle class and boarded up their shops so that no one could shop there and then charged people fines or jail for trying to violate those orders, we would see the beginnings of the Holocaust. Instead of having a disease, they had a religion, so we had uh, a tracking app. It was called the Yellow Star. And we take away and deprive groups of their civil rights, slowly at first, but it's like the boiling frog. It just gets a little more, a little more, a little more. And I have that European background, too, Polish-German. I promised my grandfather on his deathbed, never again. And I'm seeing this all start to happen again, that a majority can denigrate a minority and wish them harm, and that's okay. The minority would just be people who are not going along with the dictates of the mind control program. And where will that end? And I don't think it will end well, because by the time we realize how deep the hook has been put into us, it'll be far too late, and we won't be able to get it out, because there'll be a mass madness upon us. And the injection. Can you leave with us a little positive news, George? Well, what, what... Positive news, Richard, is if I told you that when you leave tonight, you're going to slip and fall down the stairs, and then you take the elevator, it's okay. If Jimmy Jones is getting his revenge, what's the Kool-Aid? How about the injection. We can't have any cure that works. We're just being led to a result where we have to take this injection. And many experts say, after, and one is Dr. Gold, who was at one of the big protests, after the second injection, you become susceptible to getting COVID, and it will kill you. A former Russian doctor, uh, his name was Igor Shepard. I guess he changed his name, but he works for a state health department. He, he worked for Russian bioscience, and he said this alleged vaccine, this injection, was created as a biological weapon to kill our first responders, who are the first on the list, so that we kill well, the Well, yeah, we have to be careful about yeah, That's one, one person's opinion. But let me, let me ask you, just for a little bit of uh, optimism here, as we, as we say goodnight, what... what what do you see uh, happening in the next six months? Is there any is there any positive uh, news here? Well, the positive news is the pushback. 
Because as we all start to become aware of what's going on and seeing how it's being used and understanding that, you know, that was one of the courses I signed up for as a peace officer a long time, too, was cults. It was just, oh, well, I get out of work for a couple of days. I'll take this course. And I had no idea that, you know, it's going to come back and be something that's in my pocket close by today. And I just see all the things happening as we are in this giant Jonestown. And we're being scared, frightened, intimidated, and coerced into going along. And sooner or later, we just have to say, stop, enough is enough. Because some of our leaders just may be, as they call them, useful idiots, that they've been terrorized. Oh, there's a lot of that. That's that's to be sure. These are not our brightest and best running the show. That's to be sure. George, how do we listen to you? PowerHourNation.com, Thursday. And uh, in time, with your friend Steve, I will probably be doing things myself to post on his replacement for YouTube as he gets his servers in some rare country somewhere where basic human rights are allowed. And I would strongly recommend you watch a little snippet from Papillon as you're being greeted to go into reclusion where they break you down. And you see exactly what's happening to us. Conspiracy-cafe.com. George, thank you so much. Good night. Good night. My thanks to Carlos and Ryan back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.